My sermon today is titled, When God Says No. Now, that's not something we like to see, is it? You see, we come up with our plans, and we think what we know what is best, and so we say to God, we want you to say yes. We lay that out in front of him and say, just say yes. But yes isn't always what's best for us. A great example of that is what we saw last week. If you were here, you'll recall in the beginning of Acts chapter 15, we saw that there was a group. They were from the sect of the Pharisees. They were called Judaizers. These were those who came and they said, listen, there's this gospel of grace. Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. But what we want you to tell them is they need to be circumcised. They need to do the works of the law. They were adding in works with grace. And you recall there was this big debate. They were there in Antioch and the church in Antioch said, listen, we need to, we need to push this up the ladder and it needs to go to the, the leaders in Jerusalem where the church was birthed. And so Paul and Barnabas and others went down 300 miles to Jerusalem. They convened this council in Jerusalem in 49 AD. And there was a lot of discussion and debate. And what does God's word say? And it, when it all came together, what God said is no. God said, no, you're not going to add works to the gospel of grace. You're saved through faith alone, through grace alone. It's not by being circumcised. It's not by the works of the law. It's not through these other things. And as we look at Acts 15, uh, 19 today, what we see is uh, God delivers this message through a guy by the name of James. James, as you'll recall, was the half-brother of Jesus. He was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And what James says to us is found in Acts 15, 19 through 29. He says, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who were elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia and, and who, are from, who are from the Gentiles' greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words on settling your souls, It seemed good to us, having become of one mind to select some men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from the blood, and from the things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Now, as James says, it is my judgment. This isn't his personal opinion. You see by looking at verse 29 that he says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us who not to lay upon you any greater burden than these essentials. And then he lists three things. Now, as we look at these three things, remember this is instruction given to the Gentiles who were already believers. These were not things that they were being told you need to do in order to be saved. Rather, he's saying because you are already saved, this is how you need to live. As you read the Bible, it tells us in Romans 5, 8, it says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And then it goes on to say in verse 9, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. See, what the Bible says is God will take us just like we are, sinners, far from him, people in rebellion. But then it says once we come to faith in his son, he loves us too much to leave us like we are. The Bible describes a three-step process that I want to walk you through briefly this morning. Uh, In the Bible, the first step is something that is called justification. And justification is the process where we are saved through faith. And what happens in justification is that Jesus Christ's righteousness, remember, he was sinless. He was perfect. He was God in the flesh. He never committed sin. And it says his righteousness is credited to the believer when we accept his death in our place by faith. And what happens is our guilt is credited to Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember, Romans 5, 9 said we have been justified by his blood. Uh, Justification, some people have tried to describe as being just as if I never sinned. Now, that sounds great, but it's wrong. Justification is not just as if I had never sinned because I have sinned. You have sinned. We all have. The Bible is very clear about that. It says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we're sinners, we have a big problem because Romans 6.23 goes on to say the wages of sin is death. What we earn by how we live our life is not entrance into heaven. We are in separation from God because of our sin. Now, the good news is that verse goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So what justification is, is not God forgetting our sin. It's God forgiving our sin when we accept his son as our savior. What the Bible tells us is we owe a penalty, a penalty of death. It's why as Jesus died on the cross, he said in John 19.30, it is finished. The original Greek text says there, tetelestai, tetelestai, paid in full. Literally, it means the account has been closed because it's been covered. It's been paid off. And it was paid off through the death of Jesus Christ. Remember, it says we are justified by his blood in Romans 5, 9. Now, when we come to faith in Christ, this penalty of ours is paid for. It's washed away. And this process is called justification. It's where we have been saved from the penalty of sin. It's not by what we do that we're saved. It's by what God's Son did that we're saved. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. What the Bible tells us is we have been saved from the penalty of sin because Jesus paid it. Now, as believers who have been saved from sin... You think of that line as your life, this three-step process I told you. So that justification is where you cross that line of faith and you move from being dead to alive in Christ. Now, there's a day coming where we're all going to die. Our physical lives on the earth will end, or if God chooses to rapture us, our physical lives on the earth will end and we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That is the last part of the line that is called glorification. Now, glorification is an instantaneous process, just as salvation is. The moment we believe, we're saved. We're going to talk in a moment about this middle step called sanctification, which is our lifelong walk with God. But glorification is what we're told about in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, where it says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. At the moment you breathe your last on this earth, whether through physical death or the rapture, you will be in the presence of God. Your physical body remains, 
but your eternal soul goes into the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and 53 tells us about the rapture. It says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable, our earthly physical bodies, it says, For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Philippians 3.21 describes it this way, God will transform the body of our humble state into conformity, with the body of his glory. Now, this glorification will be a double change. There will be a physical change. Our perishable bodies are done away with. We are given an eternal body. There will also be a sin nature that is resident within us that is removed. In the presence of God, there can be no sin, and in heaven, there is no sin. And so, glorification will be where we're saved from the presence of sin. Now, the the process between these two bookends is what we're doing right now as we live our life. If you're somebody who's come to faith in Christ, you've been justified. And until you die or are raptured, you won't be glorified. But you're, you're living something called sanctification. And sanctification is where we are being saved from the power of sin. What the Bible tells us is that we've been crucified with Christ And as those who have been crucified with Christ, we no longer have to be slaves to sin. You can read that in Romans 6, 6 and in Galatians 4, 7. In Philippians one twenty seven, Paul tells us, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, when he says to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel, he doesn't say hope that you're good enough to deserve being saved. What he says is, as those who are already saved... You need to understand the great cost that God paid as his son went to the cross. You need to understand the great value of his sacrifice. And as such, understanding the value of that, he says you will treat it as such. You will know the worth of it, and you'll live in a way that looks like that. The Bible tells us, as believers, when it says only conduct yourself, the Greek word used there is politomai. You've heard the the English word politics. The word politomai means to live as a citizen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, where is our citizenship? It's in heaven. Philippians 3.20 tells us, for our citizenship is in heaven. And what Paul tells us is, as believers, our future home that is going to be with God in heaven at glorification is where our citizenship is. And he says, right now, as those who belong to Christ, we need to live as citizens. We need to live in a manner worthy of the calling of God. That means that we live our lives in a way that shows we belong to Jesus Christ. Now, as we live our lives, there are going to be times that we backslide. There are going to be times that we sin. Uh, that's, that's a process of sanctification that is not always up and to the right or forward. Uh, there are going to be times we go backwards. And in those times, uh, we still belong to God. We are not going to be sinless until we get home to heaven at glorification. But we are to sin less and less as we live our lives for God. And that's what's being talked about here in verse 29. When Paul and Peter and Barnabas and all these guys, James, are talking to the Gentile believers, what they're saying is, we want you to live in a way that shows you belong to Jesus Christ. And we want you to do that in a way that is going to honor the body times two. One is your physical body. You should live in a way where you conduct uh, yourselves. The Bible says our body is a temple of the Lord. And do you not know that the spirit of God dwells within you? And what he says is there are things we can do in our physical body that dishonor God. And then he says there are things we can do to the body of Christ 
which dishonors God. And this is what he's talking about because you had Jewish believers and Gentile believers who were coming together in this new creation called the church that we talked about last week. And he says, as those of you with different backgrounds and cultures and upbringings are coming together, there's a clash. There's a clash because sometimes you do things differently than one another, and it's creating disunity in the body. It stands as an opportunity uh, to break apart the unity of the body. And this is what is in view here. In verse 19, the Judaizers were told not to trouble those who were turning to God from among the Gentiles. Now, the word trouble there literally means to put a roadblock, a stumbling block in the road. You've driven through neighborhoods that have those little speed bumps, and uh, that's designed to tell you, hey, don't, don't burn rubber through this neighborhood, slow down. And what he said is the, the Jews were coming along, these Jewish believers were saying, hey, we know you're, on, you're saved. You've, John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You've gotten on the road of salvation through grace, but we want to drop all these speed bumps in the road along the way. And James says, remove those things. God doesn't want any stumbling blocks in the road for the believers as they're walking with him. And now he turns around and he says to the Gentile Christians, listen, I want you guys to remove the stumbling blocks as well. Y'all are putting stuff in the road that is going to cause some of the Jewish believers to stumble. Imagine you've got a friend who's a vegetarian. You've got a a friend who's a a vegan who says, hey, I want you to come over to my house. I'm going to have this meal. And you're coming over and you decide, hey, I want to be a good guest. I'm going to bring a covered dish to go with whatever's prepared. And so you show up at the door, your friend opens the door and you're standing there and, and he or she goes, uh, what, what is that? And you go, well, you know, this afternoon I was out back grilling some ribs and some steak and sausage. And, you know, I, I brought that along with me. Now, if you're a, a vegetarian who says, I don't want any meat in my house, I don't want any meat products around and all that, what kind of f- tone have you set for the night? Is that going to be a real fun meal as you're sitting there eating ribs at the table of your friend who says, I've, I've got a nice tofu spread here that I want you to try? <laughs> That's what was happening. Remember, all throughout the book of Acts, we've read where the believers, it says, were eating They were going house to house and eating meals together. It said those who had were sharing with those who were in need. You remember when Peter was called to go to the house of Cornelius, the Gentile, uh, and he said, hey, it's not not lawful for me, a Jew, to eat with y'all who are Gentiles. And so what was happening is you had these feasts where now you had these observant Jews, these, these Judaizers who were saying, we follow the Levitical law, and the Levitical law said you kept a kosher kitchen. And one of the things that the Levitical law said is when you prepare meat, you drain all the blood from it. There was a specific way to do it. And the Gentiles were bringing in food that had been prepared differently, so it would be like dropping a T-bone steak on the table of a vegetarian and saying, what's the problem? And so he's saying, you guys are coming together for what is supposed to be uh, a fellowship meal, and it's breaking out into a fight because some of you are bringing in stuff that's offending somebody else. And he says, so what I want you to do is to stop. Don't bring in, he says, meat that that hasn't been uh, prepared in a way that is not offensive to the Jewish believers. And the second thing he talks about is in line with that. He, He says you're to abstain from eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now, again, in our day, this doesn't seem like a big deal to us. But in the first century, this was a major, huge issue because the most of the meat in that day was coming from the temples. You'll recall in Judaism, they would take the sacrifices to the temple. 
And as they offered it, there were times that whole offerings went solely to God, but other times the priest kept a portion. And then there were times that the person bringing the offering would get back a portion of the meat to take home with them. And in the pagan rituals, it was very similar. The meat that was being sacrificed in the temples went to support the the pagan priests, and people would get it, and then they were also selling the excess meat in the open marketplace. So if you had meat on your table, chances were pretty good that it had come from a pagan sacrifice unless you had kind of homegrown your own stuff. And so when somebody showed up at a meal with meat, most of the people sitting around the table are going, where'd you get that? Oh, hey, I bought it, you know, out back from the Temple of Zeus. There's this great little market that I like to go to. It's like Calabra, you know, and they got this, this meat over there. And, and, and if you were, again, a believer sitting there, you're kind of going, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, remember, there were new people coming to the faith, coming in weekly, daily. And what's happening is they're saying, yeah, last week I was sacrificing in that temple to that false god, and now I know there's only a true god And you've got meat that I know where it came from, and it's creating a problem. This is how Paul describes the the problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In the Corinthian church, he, he was dealing with this issue as well. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 and following, it says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. So Paul's a mature believer, and he says, listen, we know that these pagan gods don't exist, so this is really a non-issue. But listen to what he says. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, is being, their conscience being weak is defiled. Paul says, listen, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Now, Paul says as believers, we get that there is only one true God. So the meat is really a neutral issue. But he also says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, but take care of this liberty of yours that it does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And knowing this will happen for some, he concludes by saying in 1 Corinthians eight thirteen, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. You see, Paul is this mature believer, and he says, I get that this is a non-issue, but I also get that there are people sitting around the table that this is a big problem for. Let me put it in a term that you may understand in our culture. Say you're going over to a a backyard barbecue with somebody, and you're a person who says, uh, I understand the Bible doesn't prohibit drinking. The Bible says, do not be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't prohibit believers drinking, but some of you have been raised in backgrounds where you've been told drinking is wrong. It's a sin. So at one level, that's the problem. But let's even remove that issue and just say, what if your friend that you're sitting next to at the barbecue is a recovering alcoholic. And you show up, and you've got a nice bottle of wine that you pop the cork on, or you bust open your cooler, and you've you know, got a six-pack there, and you drop a cold one on the table and say, you want one? And this person who's a recovering alcoholic is going, I don't need this temptation. This, this is a stumbling block for me. I, I know what can happen if I partake of it. And what wisdom says is, 
that we don't put a friend in a situation like that. We just say, look, I would rather forego my liberty, my freedom to drink for the sake of somebody else. And this is what Paul is saying here. He says, listen, you have the freedom to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but you've got to understand that this is a struggling point for some because they either see it as a spiritual issue or they're recovering themselves or they're saying, well, if that's allowed, well, then all these other things are allowed. And what Paul says is, as mature believers, we just need to step away from that stuff. That's not legalism. That's love. Because love says I'm willing to set aside my rights for the sake of somebody else. I'm willing to forego things I could do in order not to be a stumbling block to the gospel. I talked about drinking. Uh, I personally do not drink. I don't have a problem with it. I don't think the Bible prohibits it. As I said, it prohibits us getting drunk and these other things. But I know that as a pastor of a church, there are people that would say, I can't go to your church if you're somebody who's going to drink. Now, when I'm around people who are drinking, I don't give them the stink eye and go, what's up with that? You know, we have, we have street parties in my neighborhood, and they often set up in my driveway, and, you know, they're busting out coolers and wine, and you want one? No, I got my Dr. Pepper. I'm good, you know. And I don't sit there and go, how dare you bring that stuff into my driveway? And so this is what it's saying. We as Christians need to be willing to forego our liberty, not to be saved, but because we are saved. And we recognize that there are problems that the way we're living can create for the gospel. Now, the third thing Paul mentions, uh, let, me, let me just mention something else, a, a, a part of this. Because if you look ahead to Acts 16, 1 through 3, this is what it tells us there. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, I want you to remember that Paul is one of the leaders who led the battle against circumcising people, right? And so you're reading this and you're going, what just happened? Paul's been telling everybody, no, 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 don't get circumcised. You don't have to get circumcised. And now he takes this guy named Timothy, and he personally circumcises him. Paul had been a Pharisee. He was a guy that knew how to do this stuff. And, and he says, Timothy needs to get circumcised. And we're going, well, that's kind of inconsistent, isn't it? Actually, Paul's being very consistent. And let me explain it this way. Remember on the first missionary journey, this is where this guy Timothy is. He's in Lystra and Derby. This is one of the regions that Paul and Barnabas went through. And Timothy, as we're going to see, was saved under the ministry of Paul. Paul goes on and calls him my son in the faith. And so this is a guy that, that Paul has already brought to the Lord. Notice that he's called a disciple. He's already a believer. What was Paul saying we're not to add to the gospel? Circumcision in order to be saved. He's saying Timothy is already saved. If you want to see how Paul's being consistent in this position, read Galatians chapter 2. Because in Galatians chapter 2, Galatia is in this same region. Paul writes the book to the Galatians during this time in Acts. And what it tells us in Galatians 2 is there's another guy there by the name of Titus. Now, Titus is a Greek. Timothy is both Greek and Jewish. His mother is a Jewess, and that's how the line is carried. Titus is a full-blown Greek. He has no Judaism in his background. And what Galatians 2 tells us is the Judaizers were saying, hey, Titus, this Gentile, needs to get circumcised. And Paul says, forget it. 
Titus isn't going to get circumcised because what you're trying to do is make all Gentiles be circumcised. So why does Paul say Timothy needs to get circumcised? We've been talking about removing stumbling blocks, remember? Paul's being consistent. He says if there is a stumbling block in the road that we as a believer have the ability to move out of the way so it becomes a non-issue, what are we supposed to do? Get that rock out of the road. And he says, Timothy, you're Jewish. And there are going to be people that as you go on this second missionary journey with me, he's calling Timothy to come because not only is he a man of high character, spoken well of by all the believers, but Paul says, hey, you are very valuable. Being half Greek, you can talk to the Gentiles. And being half Jew, you can talk to the Jews. The problem's going to come when a Jew says to you, are you circumcised? And he says, no. And they go, I can't listen to you because you don't love God. You don't follow the law. You don't, you know. All of a sudden, you're off in a side issue that's a non-issue. And so what Paul says is, Timothy, let's just take care of this. Let's remove any potential stumbling block. It doesn't save you. You see what's going on here? And so what happens is uh, Timothy gets circumcised, and he joins the journey. Now, I said Paul was being very consistent because what he's saying is, again here, Timothy, set aside your freedom, which says you don't have to be circumcised for the sake of the gospel. Now, you may be saying, yeah, but what about Timothy's dad, the Greek, who didn't let his son get circumcised to begin with? Isn't this kind of creating a stumbling block for him, going against his father? Well, as you look at verse 3, the way the verb is used there, it's in the imperfect tense, which most commentators agree means his dad is dead. His father, who was the issue, is no longer on the scene. In fact, you find further um, evidence for that in 2 Timothy 1.5, where the background of Timothy is talked about. His father's not even mentioned. There Paul says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And Paul knows it's in him because in 1 Timothy 1.12, he calls Timothy my own son in the faith. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, he says, my beloved son. Paul says, I, I'm your spiritual uh, daddy. I helped you come to faith in, in Lystra when I was there on the first missionary journey. Now, the last issue that's mentioned in Acts 15.29 is, is clear cut. It's not like any of these we have to really explain because it's straightforward. It says abstain from fornication. Fornication, by definition, is sex outside of marriage. And the Bible tells us there is no debate. It says in, 1 Corinthians, it says in Hebrews 13, 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. You see, what the Bible tells us is when it comes to sexual intimacy... God has designed it to be enjoyed exclusively in a marriage relationship between a husband with his wife, and that's it. It doesn't uh, belong in a dating relationship. It doesn't belong in a casual hookup. Now, as I say that, some of you are kind of squirming, going, I can't believe the pastor's talking about sex. Uh, well, God talks about it. And what God talks about, he doesn't only talk about it, he's the guy who gave it to us. Do you realize that? You know, I talk to people sometimes who say, you know, God's a prude. There's this great thing out there, and he doesn't want us to have it. And I say, do you know who gave that to us? Who is it that invented intimacy in the first place? It was God. And you know what God says about sexual intimacy and the context he designed it? Read the book of uh, Song of Songs. Read uh, Song of Solomon 5.1 says, Eat, friends. Drink and imbibe deeply, O lovers. Uh, 
A pretty modern translation of the Greek there, uh, the Hebrew there would say, go for it. Enjoy it. Have all you want within the context of a husband and wife in a loving, committed marriage. You see, God isn't trying to withhold something good from us. He gave it to us. And he says, what I want for you is the best. He says, what happens is you take what I gave you as a gift and and you treat it in an unworthy manner because society says, you know, just have these casual hookups, do things. Believers pressure one another and various things that happen. And, And what happens is God says, you know why I said to have it only in a marriage relationship? Because it protects you. Medical science tells us that if you have a man who is a virgin and a woman who is a virgin and they marry each other and they've been sexually pure with only each other, they don't have to worry about sexually transmitted diseases. It also tells us that in a committed relationship where there is love between a husband and a wife, you're not, you're not abused and thrown aside, you're not used up, and when something better comes along, the person moves on. You protect the children uh, who may be born through an unplanned pregnancy where now they're raised in a single-parent home or uh, a situation where that that precious life is terminated through uh, an abortion. And so what God says is, I've designed something for you, and it's to be enjoyed in the context in which I gave it to you. And so what he says to us is, abstain from fornication. It's not God withholding something good from us. It's rather us wanting him to have his very best. Now, some of you sitting here today are saying, well, Roger, I've, I've messed up. I've partaken of God's gift before I should. I'm in a relationship right now where I'm, I'm sexually involved with somebody. What do I do? What God tells you is in 1 John 1, 9, is if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confession is the Greek word homo legeo. Homo means the same. Legeo means to speak or say. Confession is where we literally say the same thing as God says about it. And what God says is this is wrong to have sexual intimacy outside of a committed husband and wife in a marriage relationship. And so if you're doing it, God says repent. The word repent means to stop, to turn around and go in the other direction. And what God says is you need to stop. You need to become celibate. And you need to live in a way that honors your body as a temple that belongs to me, as well as honoring me in the the gift that I've given to you, both of salvation and in terms of how I made this to be. Now, as we talk about this gift of sexual intimacy, it's an example of where God says no, and it can also be yes. This is what I mean. When it comes to having sex outside of marriage, God says, no, don't do that. That's not the way I designed it. But if it's in a marriage relationship, what does God say in Song of Solomon 5.1? Go for it. That's a yes. That's what I designed it for. The Bible says a husband and wife should only abstain from sexual intimacy for times of extended prayer. Okay? So God says go for it in the context that I designed it. Now, we're about to see a couple other examples of where there's a similar situation where a no for one is a yes for another. But before we get there, look at verses 30 through 35, because the decision that was made in the Council of Jerusalem is carried back to the believers in Antioch. Verse 31 says, when they, had, when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Remember, 300 miles away is where this whole debate started, where the Judaizers said, circumcise the Gentiles. The council's decision is made. It's carried up to Antioch. The news is shared. 
We're told in verses 36 through 41, there's a lot of other preaching. We're not told what was said. And then it says, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. You recall in the first missionary journey, they had been out in this area. They had gone down to Cyprus, and then they went north up into the area of Galatia, and they were all throughout this region. And then it says that after the persecution, they went back and encouraged the brethren. They returned to Antioch. They reported to the church all that was happening, and then they went down to Jerusalem, and now they're back. And they're saying, you know, it's been a while since we've been back to see the churches. Let's go back. And check them out. Let's encourage them as we did before. Let's make sure things are still uh, going well. Barnabas says, great plan, Paul. But now look at what happens. It says, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Do you remember Acts 13, 13? This is where they were on this missionary journey. Things got tough, and John Mark, this young guy who's the cousin of Barnabas, cut and ran. He deserted them. He went back home to Jerusalem. He left Paul and Barnabas in a lurch. And now there's this second missionary journey about to go out, and Barnabas says, hey, I want to bring John Mark along again. And Paul says, the guy can't come. No. Maybe? No. It says, and there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, and he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So what we're told happens is they're there up in Antioch, where you see the red arrow kind of starting out, And remember, these are all the churches that we saw in the first missionary journey. There's the the line. And what happens is these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, godly leaders who have been together for 15 years, through thick and thin, suddenly separate. And they go out as two separate teams. The yellow arrows that you see are where Barnabas and John Mark go down by sea to Cyprus. Remember, Cyprus was Barnabas' hometown. And so they head south by sea, and Paul takes Silas, and he goes by that land route all the way around, which is why he goes into those churches in reverse order. And this is where what happened in Acts 16, 1 through 3, that we read about Paul seeing Timothy and calling him to join the journey takes place. Now we see what else is happening is in verses 4 through 10. It says, now while they were passing through the cities, they were, they were delivering the decree which had been decided upon by the, the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Now as this is taking place, we come to verse 6, and they're going to be moving into this area. See that arrow up at the top left corner? They've been around these churches that they've already planted, but now we're about to see where Paul is going to move into a new area. And this is what we're reading about in verse 6. It says, They passed through Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were wanting to go into Bithynia, but the spirit, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, what we're reading here is this journey's taking place, that red arrow's down by Lystra, where Timothy gets picked up on the journey, and they're going to head up and go to the north. And it tells us that Paul, as he's on the road, says, hey, let's go up here to Bithynia. They're traveling along. There's this region that the gospel hasn't penetrated to yet. And Paul says, hey, we, we need to go here and share the good news. But it's said that the spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, blocks it. And we go, what? This is an instance where God says, no. Paul says, hey, we're going we're gonna to go up here and share the gospel. And God says, no, you're not. And he says, oh, no, this is, God, this is a good thing. The gospel, people need to be saved. Whole regions are coming to Christ. Uh, and God says, no, no, you're not. And we're going, why? You see, what God says is, no, you're not going to go north to Bithynia. What I want you to do is go uh, east to Troas. And as you go across the channel there, do you know where you end up? Modern-day Europe. That's where Macedonia and the other part of the journey that you're going to read about coming in the, the next parts of Acts. What God says is, uh, I don't want you to stay here in Asia continuing to share the gospel. I want you to have the Macedonian call and cross over and go into modern-day Europe and begin to share the gospel. And as we're looking at this, again, we can say, yeah, but don't the people of Bithynia need the gospel too? And they do. And what we find is God has a plan for them. Because if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 tell us this. 1 Peter 1, 1 says, Peter, not Paul, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout, now listen, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Paul says, I, God says, Paul, I have a plan. And it's for Peter. Peter is the one who will go to Bithynia. I want you to go to Europe. You see, when God says no, it's not a rejection. Sometimes it's a redirection because of the plan he has for you. When God says no to us, it doesn't feel good, does it? We say, but God, I have my plans and I know what's best and I don't see why this is out of your will. I read the Bible, it's in your will. These are things, why? And what God says sometimes is, my, my denial is simply a delay. You don't need all the information. You don't need to know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing is God, but you don't, and that's okay. You've got this little piece of the puzzle. Here's your part to put in the picture, and I know what the whole picture looks like. And God hands us pieces sometimes, and we go, I don't, I don't like this. It's dark and black and jagged, and I don't see where it fits. And what God says is, without that piece, the puzzle will not be complete. The picture needs this. And so what we have to understand is God's uh, no is not a rejection. Sometimes it's a redirection because he has a bigger plan. Sometimes God's denial is a delay because, again, he has a plan. He's at work in a way we don't understand. How, how do you think John Mark felt when he said, okay, I'm ready to go, and, and Paul said, no, you're not. No, you're not going. And he's going, why not? And Paul says, because I said no. And it wasn't just Paul. It was God leading. Did you notice how it says the leadership of the church commended Paul and Silas? Now, Barnabas wasn't being a renegade. It doesn't say they prohibited him from taking 
what it simply says is sometimes God works in ways that are different. And maybe you've been a part of something and you're saying, why won't people support me? Why aren't they giving me money for the mission trip or saying yes or jumping on board with my plan? And it doesn't mean that, that they're bad people. It means that God's given them a different direction than you. And so Barnabas says to John Mark, I'm going to take you with me. God obviously led Barnabas to take this young man along. And he said, I'm going to grow and I'm going to develop you. Sometimes God's delays are because we're not yet ready for something. And God has to prepare us. And God has to raise us up. And he's doing a work that we don't always understand or see. John Mark was a young guy who, who was, you know, passionate, but he was also, you know, not real developed and stable. And he had to grow and he had to be refined through hardship. And he had to be mentored by Barnabas. And as he did, do you know what happened to John Mark? That, that guy grew into a choice servant of the Lord. He became a pastor, an evangelist. He, he's the guy, if you've ever read the, the gospel of Mark in the Bible, God used him to write that gospel for us. And as we saw in a previous message uh, about Barnabas and his ministry of encouragement, we saw how Barnabas, his influence in the life of John Mark, John Mark grew into such a great uh, workman for the Lord that Paul, as he was nearing the end of his life, said, bring John Mark. As Paul was dying in a prison cell, uh, he said, I want two things. I want the parchments, the scriptures, and I want to see John Mark. And there was this wonderful use where God's no at this moment became a reunion and a reconciliation down the road. You know, God's no may be so that we can say yes to something else. If Paul had gone up into Bithynia, would he have been available to go into Europe and carry the gospel there? No. And sometimes what God says to you is no, because I have a yes for you to do something else. You've heard me say before, whenever we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. Because we commit that slot on our calendar, we commit our resources of uh, money or people or time, uh, our energy towards something. And so when we say yes to something, it's no to something else. And sometimes God says no to us because he says, I have a yes that I need you to say to another part of my plan. So when God says no, rather than seeing it as a rejection, what we need to do is ask ourselves a question. Ask ourselves, am I in the right place at the right time and with the right people? We, we may need to ask ourselves, uh, what is it that God's trying to teach me by asking me to wait? I may feel I'm ready, but God says, no, you're not quite ready. You're like John Mark, and you need to grow and develop because I have a bigger platform to use you in. Or it could be that God is saying, I'm closing this door because I have a different path I want you to go through. I have a different door that is open for you to walk through. You know, so often we think when God says no, that it means he doesn't love us. But that's not true. As we come to the communion table now, we're going to see an example of why God said no so that he could say yes to us. You see, as we come to the communion table, it's a demonstration of God's great love to us. I want you to remember that the communion service that we're about to uh, celebrate comes out of the Passover supper. And the Bible tells us that as Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, he met with the disciples. He gathered together with them in the upper room and he explained to them what was coming. And then he took them from the, the Passover to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And as you look at Matthew 26, 39, Jesus is there in prayer. He said to the disciples, stay here and, and, and spend the night with, in prayer with me. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew there was a crowd being gathered by the, the leaders of the temple and the, the officials were coming to arrest him, to take him to the cross ultimately, that he would have to suffer and die a horrible death. And it tells us Jesus was there struggling in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he was praying, it says in Matthew twenty six thirty nine, and he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying this, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus is God. He knows the plan from the beginning, from Genesis, as we talked about last time. He knows what is coming, and he says, Daddy, God the Father, If it's possible, will you remove this cup of suffering? And what did God say? No. Jesus, you have to go to the cross. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus was willing to do it because he goes on to say, he says, if possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. God said no, and God said yes. God said, yes, I love you so much. I will go to the cross and I will pay the penalty of death for you. I will die in your place. I will shed my blood, as Romans 5, 9 says. We are justified by his blood. And as we come to the communion table today, we're reminded of God's great love for us. How he said yes to us. How he gave his life to be the payment to justify us, to take our place and remove that penalty of sin. And if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so today. To take the cup, if you've never done so, and and hold on to it and say, Jesus, I'm turning from my sin into you to be my Savior. I believe your blood washes away my sin, and I accept you today as my Savior. Take the piece of bread and hold it and say, God, this represents your body, how you came to be my sacrifice, going to the cross to die for me. And today, God, I accept you by faith. As the men come and pass these elements, I want you to take and hold them. We're going to take them together. If you're a believer and you've already received Christ in the past, I want you to look at your life today and say, are there any sins you need to confess? Do you need to prepare yourself to come to this table with clean hands and hearts?
piece of bread we hold in our hands represents the body of Christ. It shows how God answered the question of, do, do you really love me, God? Romans 5, 8 said he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't love us this much or this much. He said, I love you this much. And he spread his arms wide and he died on the cross, allowing his body to be the sacrifice for our sins. God's yes to us. He loves us this much. He did in remembrance of him. The book of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And the sacrifices that were given in the temple were just a temporary covering. They didn't remove the penalty. Jesus said in John 19.30 to tell us, they paid in full, I've closed the account. John the Baptist said of Jesus as he came, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we saw in Romans 5.9 today, we are justified by his blood. Not by our works, not by coming to church, not by being good enough. We're saved and justified. Penalty paid in full by the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins. Drink it in remembrance of him. We join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your great love. Seeing in that you went to the cross to take our place, to pay our penalty. And for all of us who receive your son by faith, we're made a part of the family. We're justified. And we look forward to that day where we'll be glorified, home with you in heaven made perfect. But until that day, Lord, you call us to live sanctified lives, those that are set apart, those that are lived for you. So help us, Lord, to be those who live as your children, your ambassadors in the world around us. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.